Major support for Out to Lunch on WWNO provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with more than 375 attorneys and offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base, joneswalker.com, and from Iberia Bank, offering comprehensive banking services designed to meet the needs of consumer, small business, and commercial clients, serving Louisiana clients for 100 128 years and now serving a regional base with a commitment to developing people and investing in its communities. IberiaBank.com. Additional support comes from Luba Workers Comp and 30 North Investments. From Commander's Palace Restaurant in the Garden District in New Orleans, we're out to lunch with Peter Raschuti. Peter Raschuti is Tulane University's A.B. Freeman School of Business professor and economist. It's business, New Orleans style. Hi, I'm Peter Raschuti. Welcome to Out to Lunch. There's an old saying in the Nashville music business, I like both kinds of music, country and western. Here in Louisiana, we have a similar view of the energy business, uh, oil and gas. Just as country music is inextricably entwined with Nashville, energy production is an integral part of local, national, and global economy. But unlike country music, the stars of the energy business are not exactly household names. Joe Bennett, for example. Joe is Executive Vice President and Chief Investor Relations Officer for Tidewater. Now, Tidewater services the offshore oil and gas industry worldwide with a fleet of vessels that is second in size only to the U.S. Navy. Uh, Joe, welcomed out to lunch. Great to be here, Peter. Thanks for the invite. Great, Jeff. I always wanted to have you on. And of course, I have full disclosure, I actually am a Tidewater shareholder. So Fantastic. I'm, uh, so, yeah. And uh, then there's Ben Foley. Uh, ben is the general manager for offshore renewables for Keystone Engineering. Uh, beyond Keystone's engineering and manufacture of oil and gas structures like offshore drilling platforms, Keystone is an industry leader in an area most of us know very little about, offshore wind energy production. Ben, welcome out to lunch. Thanks for having me, Peter. Now, Joe, Tidewater's been in the energy support business since 1955. Uh, you have, as I mentioned, the biggest fleet of ships outside of the U.S. Navy. You're at work in over 60 countries around the world. You trade on the New York Stock Exchange. You employ over 7,000 people. And your worldwide headquarters is right here in downtown New Orleans. But despite all that, the average New Orleanian probably has little appreciation of Tidewater's role in worldwide energy or the local economy. As, as the person who handles investor relations for the company, uh, how important is a public profile for Tidewater? Well, it, it is very, very important. And as you mentioned in your, your uh, initial comments, is there's so much support to the drilling of oil and gas globally. One fact that a lot of people might not know is uh, something like 90% of your vessels are international, right? It is. You know, I, I've been with the company come this March. I'll be there 25 years. And when I began there, we were, we were much more so a domestic operator, Gulf of Mexico operator. And people forget over time the number of rigs that were working in 2001, uh, prior to 9-11, were about 170 rigs working in the in offshore Gulf of Mexico alone. So people ask, well, why are you 90% international now, where back in, in my heyday, we were probably 60, 70% US. It's because the business has moved international. So you're right, about 90% of our business is outside of the Gulf of Mexico. Today, the rig count in the Gulf of Mexico is 40 or 45 rigs, really? hopeful to get to 50 rigs 
by sometime next year. So oh. it's that dramatic a difference. We don't create a market, we, we somewhat follow the market wherever our customers, the Exxons and Chevrons and Petrobras and Pimex, national oil companies, international oil companies, wherever they go, that's what we have to follow. So having that international infrastructure, I, I truly believe is, is our biggest core strength. And we think of two sides. We think of you bringing um, equipment out into the... Yes. the but, uh, but for some people, that's their morning commute, right? It is, it is. You know, most of our folks that, that work out on the, uh, the boats are working a hitch that may be 14 straight days and then be off for seven days. It's different in different parts of the world. But they do. They go offshore. They leave their family for a rather extended period of time. And yes, that's their morning cup of coffee. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, they're, they're, we're doing whatever the customer asks us to do. If it's sitting at a dock by happenstance on a given day, well, we get paid to sit at the dock. Most of the time we're carrying materials the drill pipe, the casing, underneath our back decks, the liquid mud that's used to drill and circulate and, and lubricate the, uh, the drill uh, is carried. Fuel, water, et cetera, is carried out to the rig and returned from the rig. Now, Ben, one of the fascinating things that's going on at Keystone is your transition from building oil structures at sea to building wind turbines at sea. Uh, how did the company move into that field, and how big a business is it? Um, it's not so big here in the States to date. Uh, most of our work so far has been in Northern Europe. Uh, we did recently just sign two contracts uh, for projects on the Atlantic Seaboard, one in Virginia and one in New Jersey, uh, that were awarded Department of Energy grants, federal grant money, to demonstrate new technology. Um, we're, we're able to leverage a lot of our experience that we've garnered in the oil and gas industry, of course, to, to use in this industry, because at the end of the day, uh, we're mostly just structural engineers, so we're just supporting what's going out there, be it uh, separation equipment on an oil and gas platform or wind turbines for, for renewable energy production. Um, what do these look like, by the way, out there? The wind turbines? Yeah. They're three big blades, enormous. I mean, 150 meters in diameter, Whoa. so you know, it's a couple of football fields spinning there in the air. Um, and, of course, they, go, they, they, they generate some enormous loadings on the structure themselves. So. The, the key difference is we've had to, uh, typically with oil and gas, it's all about the marine environment. You know, if we get a Hurricane Katrina coming through, we have to be able to design and resist those types of loadings. This is a whole new On ball the other game. hand, you got a heck of a lot of wind that day. We do have a yes. whole, yes, that's right. Summer, yeah. uh, there's actually some professor at Stanford that decided that he could reduce a Category 5 hurricane to a Category 2 just by putting, I think the number was something on the order of 15,000 wind turbines offshore. It's an unfeasible plan. So, in theory, it works, you know, in a desk. And, Joe's going to get better Alto, at steering. But yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, come up with the money for that, though, and then we'll see how that works. But uh, it, it, the way we got into it was actually, it was kind of happenstance. Uh, you know, my, the CEO of my company had developed this intellectual property uh, back in the early 2000s, around 2004, I believe, for Chevron. Um, they built a couple of them in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, ExxonMobil actually purchased them, or purchased the design and, and built them. Um, we got involved with a company called Florida Power and Light uh, in 2004. Policy changed in Washington. There was midterm elections, or, or actually full-term elections, and uh, some green credits went away. So 2005, we all know what happened here, and every single engineering company in the Gulf was worried about fixing the platforms that were already out there. So uh, we kind of forgot about it. Um, 2009, we got a phone call from a contact we had made in Denmark at a wind turbine manufacturer called Vestas, one of the biggest in the world, the biggest 
for land-based turbines and the second biggest for offshore-based turbines to date. Um, out of the blue, and they said that the UK government was holding a competition uh, to reduce the cost of energy for offshore wind, because obviously the United States is lagging behind Europe in policy initiatives to generate renewable energy. Um, and not that, not, there's many reasons for that. You know, Europe's very dependent on right. Putin's gas and all that and trying to get away from that. So um, we entered this competition. There was over 100 comp competitors from all over Europe, North America, and even, I think, a couple in Asia and South America. Um, and we ended up winning it. So uh, there were four finalists. We were the first one that they actually built a demonstration project in the North Sea. Um, the guy and, from Metairie won. Yeah, uh, that's, that's right. That's yeah. Cool. So, uh, <laughs> well, actually, my my boss is from New Orleans. It's his design. You know, my, me and my team just converted it from an oil and gas design to a wind turbine design. Okay. So, um, and now here we are today, five years later. We've got some U.S. government-funded demonstration projects coming up, and uh, diligently working diligently working towards some commercial fields in both Europe and in East Asia at the moment. The States is a few years behind that uh, for commercial fields. The, the biggest one that's coming online soon will be about 330 megawatts of power generated off of uh, the southern coast of Massachusetts. So um, now, we're a few years behind before we start to get the real commercial developments. That's, that's the long and short of how we got involved in it. Now, and when I first heard of this, I heard about the possibility of putting turbines on existing oil and gas structures, but that's not what you're doing. No. Um, That'd be great if we could use some old platforms that weren't being used anymore and, and repurpose them. But as I mentioned earlier, the loading regime on these things is completely different. So it's, <laughs> it's, there's some guys that are trying to do it, but uh, it's, it's inefficient and, and, and probably not the way to go. And then you've got something to be very proud of, isn't that? Is in, we mentioned Katrina, but you have a, a design twisted, uh, what is it? It's not Twisted Sister, because that's what that doesn't make sense. <laughs> twisted. Quiet, yeah, it's not quite right. Uh, it's called, a, it, I'm going to say it, it doesn't roll off the tongue. It's called an inward battered guide structure. Oh, that's catchy. Beca yeah, because that, that doesn't roll off the tongue, <laughs> our friends across the pond have uh, taken to calling it the Twisted Jacket. Okay. So a jacket is just an offshore support structure for oil and gas topsides, or in this case, wind turbine. And you had it in the Gulf of Mexico and Katrina hit. We have two. Um, for ExxonMobil, and one of them was directly, it was in West Delta 30, which took a direct hit from Katrina and uh, suffered no damage. So that was kind of a trial by fire. Uh, Keep in mind, oil and gas equipment was strewn everywhere at oh, that yeah, point. Yeah. Yeah, we, so. the, the structure was only designed for, and not to get too technical, yeah. but a 100-year return storm, and Katrina was, you know, a 400-year return storm. So we, uh, we definitely had a, faith in this, yeah, by the way. exactly. There. So uh, <laughs> that, and you know, I, I travel all over the world uh, well, not all over, but Europe and Asia. And my favorite slide to show is inevitably the one where we show Katrina bearing down <laughs> on our structure. Like, look, guys, uh, it works. And, and Joe, let me ask you a question about in Louisiana. You know, first of all, we don't usually see your vessels unless we're f fishing or down at Port Fouchon and such. Right. But uh, um, there seems to be two worlds out there. There's shallow water and deep water. Where, where are the two going? Well, the, it's certainly going more to deep water. Uh, and certainly here in the Gulf of Mexico, historically the shallow water has been much more of a gas province. People don't really know that, but it has been. 
everything that has happened onshore, shale, et cetera, has really uh, reduced the activity level on, uh, in the shallow water in the Gulf of Mexico significantly. Virtually everything that's happening from an exploration and production standpoint is really deep water now. That's new in the last 10 years. I mean, deep yeah. water wasn't even, it, it began in about the mid-90s. Uh, before that, virtually everything, and I think it's indicated by the type of vessels that we have and others have, the old vessels are primarily shallow water, smaller vessels, and the newer vessels are much more deep water. And we think about these vessels, I, I remember, oh, in the late 70s, early 80s, they were, they were all kind of cookie cutter. They're like a 180 uh, ship, yeah. and for those people that never seen them, they're, see the, the wheelhouse and all is in the front. Pilot house a lot of forward free. and a lot of back deck. They look virtually the same in that the pilot house is still forward. Everything has grown. So the price of poker has gone up that the, the cost of the vessels, and it's, and it's a bifurcated market still. Uh, to go back to your original question, there's still a very viable jack-up shallow water market globally. It happens to not be in the Gulf of Mexico in any big significant way. Tidewater, as you know, has gone through this big rebuilding program over the past 10, 12, 14 years, and we have a nice mix of assets, both deep water and shallow water. We're still a big believer that shallow water and jack-up uh, type support is will be prevalent around the, the world along with deep water. Now we're going to uh, take a little time out and go to the checklist. Now that's the part of the show where we take a little break and ask you a quick question that you probably wouldn't find on a loan application. So we'll, we'll start with, uh, we're going to start with Ben on this one. Uh, um, ben, if I had you back to the show three years from now, how would the story be different? We're not going to be a fledgling industry anymore in the United States. We're going to be um, out there with commercial scale generating fields. Uh, in fact, by, yeah, three years actually. So that'd be a perfect time to have me back because uh, <laughs> we'll be a significant uh, energy producer in the Northeast. Well, and, and I'm talking, I mean, that's just the industry as a whole in the States. Uh, Keystone, personally, um, I think, again, we'll be, a, a, will not be, my group won't be 32 people. It'll be more like uh, 100 people hopefully by then. So. Uh, yeah. So things are picking up. Three times. That's, well, yeah. that's the way we'll market that. The, uh, and um, Joe, you've been with Tidewater so long, uh, you've been in business for so long, really. What would cut an interview short for you? Like, uh, what is it somebody says and you think, I don't want them as part of our team? An interview for someone that wants to work with us yeah. or someone that wants to someone invest? That, or someone or, that wants to work with you. Uh, I tell you, someone that wants to work, and we, we go out and still are actively recruiting. In fact, at your university, we right. recruit every year. And we're looking for people, one, that have the desire to go international. You know, yes, we still have a presence here in the U.S., but the fact is, once again, with 90% of our business international, they better want to pack their bags and, and, and work there. This is purely, it, it truly is a global market, much different than what it was 15, 20, 25 years ago. And the individuals have to do that in order to, to I think, really succeed and, and, and grow with how the world is, is moving in that direction. So they're not going to just hang around Canal Street. That's correct. Is, uh, the, That's yeah. right. And, of course, where you're going isn't Paris or Rome, is it? It's well, in some cases, yes. No, it's not Paris and Rome. I'll give you that. But Dubai and uh, Singapore yeah, and, you know, some pretty nice places. We're in Aberdeen, Port Horcourt, a little bit different. <laughs> you know, Venezuela, Brazil, up and down the west coast of Africa, the east coast of Africa, we have plenty challenges to, wow. uh, to deal with. So the individuals have to be tough as we recruit uh, individuals, whether they're going out on the boats or shore-based right. people. These are folks that have to roll up their sleeves and be willing to do 
whatever it takes as we do in the corporate office. We do whatever it takes. Uh, like Ben, we spend a lot of time traveling the world. And yes, we do go to challenging places, but that, you know, we, we have been prevalent in, in the more challenging places primarily because the competitors largely don't want to go there. So West Africa, while we don't have a lock on West Africa, we, ha we see far less competition there than we would in the Gulf of Mexico in a North Sea. It's a little more civilized place to, to, to live and work. You know, I heard a funny story from a guy who, is, who travels internationally with, the, with, the, with the Chevron, and he said that one of the neat things is you're across the globe, you're somewhere and you're wondering, like, where am I? And then you get on the boat, and the, the guy driving the boat is named, named Melanson or something, you know, and it kind of, <laughs> oh, yeah. it's like, Absolutely. okay, it's going to be all right. The North Sea was populated <laughs> by Cajuns, right? That's how, that's how it all got started. <laughs> The boards and all, yeah. That's uh, right. It's funny, you know, you mentioned that, you know, we're, Gulf Island, we, we, we're working for them right now. They're, they're building five offshore wind jackets to go uh, offshore Rhode Island, right? Uh, they just signed the contract, so we're wow. currently contracting on them for the design. So it's, a, it, it's all intertwined, you know. Yep. It, it's, yes, it is. You, the expertise is down here, um, and we're going to try to move it to the Northeast. But... And also, uh, you know, I got my start with Schlumberger out of school, so I know all about you the know. bad places. Oh, yeah. You know, <laughs> yes. Yeah. The far corners. <laughs> you were French there for a while. Yeah. There's a, the, uh, now let's check the inbox. Our, our producer picks a question that's come in uh, during the past week from a, a listener. Grant, what have you got? I think we have a question for each of our guests. Joe, this one's for you. Okay. From Pearl Wright, who asks, A huge fleet of oil field support ships must be expensive to fuel. Ironically, as the price of oil goes down, does it markedly increase Tidewater's profit? Well, you would think that would be the case, but it, it, on 99% of our charters to our customers, the customers pay for the fuel themselves directly. So basically, when we charter a vessel, we charter the vessel, the hard iron, the asset itself, and the people that run that asset, because we don't know what the client is going to do with that boat every day, the fuel is left out of the contract and they pay for the fuel. Now, having said that, it will be cheaper for the customer given lower fuel prices. And that's a big part when they're burning fuel every single day doing whatever support activity. Uh, it does make a difference to the ultimate customer and what their cost is. And Joe, in the, domestically, isn't there a move to try to get uh, some of the, these OSVs to operate on natural gas or some other fuels? There is. The, the, there's been some of those built, uh, LNG-powered, dual-powered with LNG. There's an added cost to that. There is a, a cost that it takes some of the carrying capacities away because of, of the vessel itself, because of the equipment that belongs on it. And the problem with that is while it can be used here, you think about uh, where else in the world can you take this vessel and have ready LNG power to, to fuel the vessel, there's challenges, at least in the current environment, to do that. So right now, it's it's primarily a Gulf of Mexico, maybe a little bit over in the Norwegian sector, but other than that, uh, not any. Okay. So. Ben, this one's for you from Laura Winstanley, who asks you, can you develop wind power in a vacuum? And she has parentheses, ha ha. <laughs> or do you have to develop it with a power company to get it into the grid? Uh, the latter. You. Uh, you need power purchase agreements to get it into the grid, unless you are, of course, the uh, uh, utility company themselves, which is one of the projects we're working in Virginia, uh, is owned by Dominion Energy, which is the primary uh, utility provider in the state. They're developing this on their own. So yes, you, 
not the scale we're talking about. You can put a wind turbine on your roof and maybe uh, sell it back to Entergy NOLA for uh, a little bit of money, but you definitely need to, uh, to get involved with utilities and get it straight into the grid. Matter of fact, that's one of the biggest hurdles you have to overcome is making sure that the grids can handle uh, this non-consistent uh, stream of power. You know, I'm, f I'm familiar with, you know, and we, we discover oil and gas and then we build a pipeline back to the beach. Yep. What, is it, what does the transmission look like in this? Subsea cables, so, uh, you know, in, in a commercial field, there'll be offshore substations to step down the power, run a cable straight to the beach, beach crossing and into your existing grid if your grid has the capacity. So um, that, that's, it, it's pretty simple. They, all the turbines come back to one offshore enormous substation. Um, and that power is, is, is run to the shore on, a, on just one singular subsea cable. Now these, these small demonstration projects are working now. Um, there's not going to be any type of substation offshore. They're just going to run the generation straight to shore and deal with it there. But long term, that's how you have to do it. Wow. Thank you guys. Joe Bennett, Ben Foley, you're both involved in major undertakings that have a significant impact on our local economy and make a contribution to the national and global markets. I really appreciate you taking the time to come here and share a little of what you're up to. Uh, thanks to both of you for joining me on Out to Lunch today. It's been our pleasure, Pete. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you, guys. My guests on Out to Lunch today have been Joe Bennett, Executive Vice President and Chief Investor Relations Officer at Tidewater, and Ben Foley, the General Manager for Offshore Renewables for Keystone Engineering. Our show is recorded live over lunch at Commander's Palace in New Orleans. Commander's Palace serves lunch Monday through Friday, jazz brunch on Saturday and Sunday with live music and dinner seven nights a week. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. The provocative Jennifer Smith is our researcher. Mitch Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can get the show as a podcast. You can listen to past shows. You can even keep up with us on all kinds of social media by going to our websites. It's New Orleans com and WWNO.org. Support for Out to Lunch comes from Baton Rouge-based PreSonus Audio Electronics. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting and WWNO for itsneworleans.com and WWNO 89.9 FM. I'm Peter Raschuti. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the table here at Commander's Palace for more business New Orleans style on Out to Lunch. Major support for Out to Lunch on WWNO provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 19 with more than 375 attorneys and offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base, JonesWalker.com, and from Iberia Bank, offering comprehensive banking services designed to meet the needs of consumer, small business, and commercial clients, serving Louisiana clients for 128 years, and now serving a regional base with a commitment to developing people and investing in its communities, IberiaBank.com. Additional support comes from Luba Workers' Comp and 30 North Investments.